This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 158, brought to you in association with Smart Pension, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Freddie McNamara, founder and CEO of InsureTech Cover, spelt C-U-V-V-A for some strange reason, to discuss moving beyond price comparison websites. Cover have around 100 staff and around 400,000 clients in the UK, so must know something and be doing it quite well. I think you all know about InsureTech and also all know what price comparison websites are, even if on the latter, like me, you're a little vague about the state of play with various inquiries into things like payments, kickbacks, blah, 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 to read the results. Freddie can update us on that state of play. At a higher level, though, this is another example of where, to be a good fintech, you must first re-engineer the problem and then only secondly spray some tech on it. It's another delayering play. In the last episode, we discussed how direct bank-to-bank payments for merchants could massively delay the conventional credit card payment chain, thereby removing many mouths to feed along the way and improving value for the customer. In the case of InsureTech, it is simplest to quote from Cover's About page. Quotes, But we soon realised insurance isn't just lacking, it's completely broken. It's built on layers of middlemen and outdated systems. So, without further ado, there's plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, Freddie. Thanks for joining me today. Good afternoon, Mike. So there's something very strange about you. I mean, there are probably very many strange things, but I didn't manage, as it's very hard to stick the thumbscrews on over Skype, to find out too many of them. But we are recording this on Friday afternoon, and there's a very strange thing, which is that it's been 30 degrees for two days, and in my study here it's about 3,000 degrees. But as I can see on Skype, you're wearing a hoodie, so either you're a very cool chap or you have a very cool house well uh we've actually decided to reopen the office office what's an office (laughs) exactly for those people who uh, are within uh non-public transportable distance of uh of of the office they can they can come in and uh, we're all very socially distanced but we're also all extremely cool because the air conditioning in this building is very powerful Oh, well, it's about one of the sort of two or three days of the year where I'm sort of very jealous of air conditioning. As the weekend's coming tomorrow, it's going back to being about 20 or 21. And say you've got a better part of 100 staff. Are they all in in London or they spread around? So pre-COVID, we were all based in the office in Angel, apart from a couple of sporadic people across the globe. Post-COVID, I think uh, everyone's going to be a lot more distributed. Yes. Okay. And as I couldn't pin you down on anything interesting other than that you're wearing a hoodie, uh, you did correct me, although I'm not sure the listeners actually noticed as a result that your, the spelling of your surname, <laughs> it's Friday afternoon, man, I'm too hot. Uh, the spreading of a surname, McNamara, which many people might have thought was MC Namara or McNamara, is actually McNamara, all one word with an A and a C and no capital N. So is that not Scottish or something? Or did your family at some point sort of decide on changing the convention of Mac? Muck this and muck that. So uh, McNamara is actually an Irish name, and the uh, the capitalised N and the shortening is actually the anglicisation that happened after the Irish were kicked out by Cromwell into England, and they wanted to blend in. But uh, 
we've stuck with the Irish version. I see. I see. That's, well, that's interesting. Well, actually, as I may have mentioned before, I don't know, Bridget and I have been going through, very recommended actually, you can get it quite cheap secondhand these days, David Starkey's History of the, the Monarchy. And when I was at school, I hated history. And when I was about seven, there was a list of kings and queens and dates, and I didn't give them monkeys. I just hated the whole thing completely. However, Starkey, who I didn't used to like back in the day, I, I do like now, tells the story very well, actually. And when it's just told as a story over sort of several episodes about what's going on, it's actually quite engaging and, and you learn some stuff. And um, certainly Cromwell was no, no friend of the Irish, no friends of many people either, actually. I mean, banned Christmas carols, banned horse racing, banned anything that involved any fun which rather reminds me of the current days, actually, that they're banning everything fun. I mean, today, talking about being hot, there's the usual hysteria from the enemy of the people, being the mainstream media, that people went to a beach and were enjoying themselves and topping up vitamin D and, and all that kind of stuff. So Cromwell has some resonance these days. Well, I can, I can tell you, looking, uh, looking at our stats, uh, many, many, many people are borrowing people's cars to, uh, to go to the beach right now. We're selling far more insurance than we've ever sold before. Oh, it's an ill wind that blows nobody any good. So in terms of your career journey, how do you get to wearing a... Uh, a hoodie on a Friday afternoon in an office in Angel? Well, it's a slightly complicated story, um, probably not particularly traditional, but uh, I left university back in 2010 and I actually started a cookery school and hospitality venue in Scotland. So I was based in rural Scotland, just outside Edinburgh, where, which is where I went to university. And for the first uh, five years of my career, I, I, I ran and built those businesses. But during the time when I was running those businesses, because we were based out in the countryside, I constantly needed people to use my car and I constantly needed to be able to, to use other people's cars. As a result, I came up with the original idea for cover, which was hourly car insurance to borrow a car from a friend. Oh, that's interesting. Well, it's a good example, and clearly we've had quite a few on the podcast, where if you've personally experienced that something is a complete pain, then you know there is a genuine problem there and how frustrating it is, as it were, a demand pull, as opposed to all too often one sees people sort of sitting down, thinking up a good idea in their shed and going, hey, this is a great idea because I think it's a great idea. And then you hire some salesman who fails to flog it and you go, oh, the salesman's no good. Yeah, there's a lot of people who start from the other other direction with a whiteboard and try and try and found a business. But I, I always think that the best businesses come from real needs that people have people have discovered in their own lives. Yes, and I always pride myself, and I pride this podcast on attention to detail. So. What type of things were you teaching people to cook when you were suffering from lack of car insurance? <laughs> uh, well, we had, we had a range of different courses. What, you mean starter, main course, dessert? That uh, well, thing, exactly. You'd absolutely love it. So our most popular one was uh, game cookery. We were teaching people how to cook. So it was a, r a rural cookery school and we were teaching, teaching how to cook game that, was, uh, that had been shot on the, uh, on, on the land where we had the, uh, we had the school. So it was a lot, a lot of pheasant. Oh, I see. I see. So A Thousand and One Things to Do with a Pheasant will be your, your book when you're a gazillionaire having floated cover. <laughs> I think so, yes. Right. OK, so that's nice and uh, linear um, in a sort of curvaceous kind of way. So the other day, I don't think it was hot, actually, but I must be in a weak moment. And you persuaded me that the topic of price comparison websites was a, was a fascinating topic of uh, great interest and how you're going to get rid of them, all in your particular case, was great interest. So I think people know what price comparison websites are. They are websites that compare prices and we've probably all used them. 
So where do they come from and, and what's the problem with them? So back in the 1990s, as I'm sure you would probably remember better than I, you used to actually ring up your insurer and the, the biggest innovation before that was uh, the disintermediation of the broker by direct line who you would ring up directly. But everything was basically done on paper and uh, you might have the rates on a computer which uh, which the person you were speaking to on the telephone would uh, would look up while they're on the, on the phone to you. And then... Uh, the risk would be mailed across the underwriter by the broker and you'd be uh, you'd be sorted obviously all of that changed uh, in the early 2000s and late 90s with the uh, with the with the coming of the internet and suddenly you were able to buy via brokers and directly to uh, insurers online. But at the same time, the price comparison websites, the aggregators, turned up with a new business model that said, well, now that everything is digitized, everything's electronic, all of these rates are in all of these databases, let's go and call those databases every time people want to buy insurance and we'll compare what the rates are. And the best rate will go at the top of the list and the worst rate will go at the bottom. And then the customer can choose solely based on price which seems very logical and, and was pretty helpful. So it has driven a huge amount of uh, negative price pressure in the insurance market, but what it's also done is completely commoditized the insurance policies themselves. So it's, it's literally down to the bare terms. And today, if you have your price at the top of a price comparison website, it is almost guaranteed to be a loss-making policy. And the only way you will then subsequently be able to make money from that customer is by trying to uh, jack up the prices next year. What they have done is disintermediated completely, well, almost completely, the traditional insurance brokers. And now you only insure, call, call an insurance broker if you have quite a specialist you know, fleet of Ferraris to insure. But they have themselves become an intermediary and they have themselves become this barrier to innovation. So this was the bit that I'm vague about, like most things in life, which is that, as you say, on, on day one, someone thought, oh, I can get all the prices, I can stick them there and I can tell people what the cheapest one is and somehow I'll monetize. And then over time that got more or less distorted to, oh yes, but legal and general for sake of argument, they'll slip me a few quid to, to nudge them up somehow. So how did all that sort of jiggery pokery sort of start taking place in the industry? Well, they're, they're obviously quite heavily regulated and the prices they put forward, they, they, they need to be uh, there needs to be very little jiggery-pokery. And actually, Admiral, one of the five largest UK motor insurers, owns Confused.com, which is one of the five largest price comparison websites. And, uh, and they have to, because they're so heavily regulated, they have to keep the sort of Chinese wall between the two businesses. And so there isn't a huge amount of jiggery-pokery in, in, in that respect. But the jiggery-pokery really happens on the pricing analytics side of the insurers. So they're looking at all of the prices and they're trying to work out from the way that you've answered your questions from the way that you behave from all the timing what your price elasticity is so that they can work out whether or not they can get a little bit more margin from you because of the way that you filled out the questions it's no longer really about who you are and the risk you pose it's about trying to go up a layer and trying to work out whether or not you're somebody who really wants to get through quickly and doesn't really mind what they pay versus somebody who is extremely price sensitive and uh, this take been taken to an ex like a huge extreme there's there, there are teams of 10 to 20 people at Aviva just trying to work out what your price elasticity is. So let's just take the example of, of car insurance because most people listening will have a car and will insure it and, and by the sound of it it's something you know a little bit about to yourself. So my car insurance comes up. I think I quite some time ago spotted that 
you shouldn't tick the automatic rollover box because that, that just says take me, take me, you know. So that I get something from the insurer and they say, oh, it's 500 quid this year, blah, blah, blah. And if it's sort of a little bit more than last year, I go, oh, never mind, I'm, I'm, I'm too busy on more important matters and I forget it. If they come and take the piss and say it's 750, I go, what? And I, I bother to go back to one of these price comparison websites, fill in a million parameters, half of which I can't remember, and it's you know, a general pain or something like that. And what I can't quite work out, unless they then take my name and look all over Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter or something like that and try and enrich the data, how they could possibly gain anything from me just saying, well, this is my address, this is my car, this is how many cylinders it's got, this is how many wheels it's got. I mean, I... Um, obviously they do, but how can they second guess anything about me in terms of price sensitivity? The information that you give them allows them to access a ton of different third-party databases that have a huge amount of information on you, where you live, what your interests are, and so they'll, they'll, they'll be mining that data and enriching that data. So the, the actual, the, the 40 questions as it were, is actually a very small proportion of the information that they then pull in from the claims and underwriting exchange, from third party risk databases, from fraud databases, that actually form the full picture of the, uh, the risk. I see, so it's a good example of where the internet isn't what we generally perceive it as, which is a bunch of characters on a screen when we've typed something into it, in that if you and I search for something on Google, we will get different things. And in the same way, even if you're going to a price comparison website and we've got the same motor car, we will see a, a different things. And it's something that Bridget and I have taken advantage of, although once or twice we've cocked it up when we left holidays too late, which is that she will look up prices on EasyJet and I will look up prices on EasyJet. We would like to be very careful about this one when we once stupidly did it with only the two seats remaining. Because <laughs> funny enough, EasyJet goes, oh, oh, there's two different people after those seats, let's jerk the price up. They will track your IP address, that the airlines will track your IP address, and if you if you make the same search again, that they know that your propensity to buy has gone way up because probably you've booked the accommodation and uh, they can jack you up 20% and you're stuffed. I see. Ah, oh, presumably these clever Johnnies actually can actually see that Bridget's on the same IP as me. Uh, yes. And actually, if they're using these databases, even if we go to the lengths of each using our own phone, not connected to the Wi-Fi, presumably, going back to how much data is enriched these days, they go, oh yeah, those two are going on holiday together. So actually, they're, they're just messing us around. So The pricing teams at all of these companies, be it airlines or insurers, are all focusing on just bringing as much of that data as possible and then using it to make margins because they can't, they can't really get margins anywhere else. I see. So there isn't so much you can do to game the system because the data that you're giving them is just the tip of the iceberg anyway. Well, if I'm on an airline's website, I'll always browse it in private mode so that they can't they can't see my IP address. Yes, I've learned to do that with Expedia, which generally we end up using just because sort of convenience and, and stuff like that. I mean, generally, we go around Southeast Asia on some fairly complex route and go to loads of different countries. So I look up things a million times and Expedia, you know, oh, yes, if you log in as your, as your username, we'll give you special prices and that. But after about sort of three weeks of doing that, Expedia goes, ah, they're dead keen on going somewhere on holiday and presumably charges accordingly. The point is that the only way you can make money in car insurance is by doing this stuff, is by going to the next database, the next fraud database, the next claims database, and trying to pull in more information than your competitors because the core product has been so heavily commoditized by the price comparison website. It's stripped every single additional benefit out of it. And actually, insurance is far richer than that. It's far more than that. And all the flexibility has been removed. And so you end up with this stack em high, sell em cheap, uh, attitude that actually shortchanges millions of people who might need extra protections, but it, it's not possible to fit it into the price comparison website paradigm. So it gets left on the on the cutting room floor, and I think this this is a major problem. 
Yes, okay, so in terms of companies deciding what price they want to charge me, I, I didn't have a problem with that. that, that's fine, they can do it. You know, there's apparently plenty of competition in the market to go to. But as you say, I can see that one of the challenges uh, is to drive everything into being a square peg and that all insurance becomes a square peg and, and if I want a sort of hexagon for some reason, I can't get it. And we've touched many times on the show in the past, as you might imagine, with previous in insurtechs over the fact that if you go to Amazon, you get a star rating, in it, And reviewers say, oh, this was a really wonderful Magimix or whatever for a former chef like you, you know, it lasted for centuries or, or, or this Magimix fell apart the day after. So I get some sense of whether they do a good job and obviously insurance in terms of how they handle claims and all that kind of thing. Insurance companies being very good at taking your money and less good at, at paying it out. As I found after some Polish gentleman, a rather large lorry smashed into the side of our car on the motorway just before lockdown. And I'm living in a sort of hell of forms and, and all this kind of jazz. So before we come on to the sort of clever techie stuff and insurer techie stuff and all that, just from the sort of of whiteboard perspective you've got this market where because of the interweb and you know fairly sensible motivations and start it's become commodified whereas actually what somebody like me wants isn't just the cheapest possible insurance going on a pile of hassle months later when some idiot crashes into you and almost kills you on the motorway I'd actually like someone that does that bit quite nicely and quite well too so what have the attempts been to introduce this quality parameter this Amazon star rating as it were the biggest attempt was from de facto which creates a star rating for insurers and that really focuses on the claims experience obviously it's really difficult for you to know what your experience with an insurer is going to be at the claim stages and de facto have done a pretty good job at making sure that the customer star rating is is the right one for the uh, likelihood of being treated poorly in the claims like claims is that claims are like motor insurance claims are the are the really murky bit of uh, UK motor insurance because there, there's so many sort of backhanders that happen in the claims industry. It really depends on whether you're fault or non-fault, who's going to get that information. You get the ambulance chasers in there, you get lawyers suing against other, other lawyers, you get people with higher car contracts and all of this adds up to basically inflates the cost of claims across the industry by probably sort of 50 to 100 percent. Right, okay, so the first thing then by the sound of it is that anybody using price comparison websites, having listened to this, they should look up de facto and see what the ratings are. Quite a lot of price comparison websites now include a de facto rating, but you're not going to be able to see what the distribution experience is like at all. You're oh. not going to be able to see. So it's not like Trustpilot. I mean, you guys have got a good yeah. rating on Trustpilot, and I'm, I'm sure somebody, even if they're malicious or whatever, will give you one star, but the, you know, the average is 4.6 or, or, or whatever it is. But actually, I can look at it, like just like on Amazon, and no, someone says this Magic Mix is only one star. Why did it say it was one star? And then quite often you find that someone says, well, you know, Amazon delivered this really late and the packaging was broken. It's actually nothing to do with what they were reviewing. In terms of the distribution experience, most insurers, there really isn't one. They've bought some off-the-shelf software that uh, that sits on their website and you you end up going from the price comparison website to their website and filling out a bunch more details and then that's it you're set for a year and if you're going to do anything change anything alter anything if you want to pause it or cancel it you're, you're ringing up their call center and they're going to charge you for everything that you do what we've brought to the table so far is the ability to do all of that in the app beautifully fire a couple of tabs okay so before we get on to you guys by the sound of it, reinventing First Direct from the 1990s, which is rather than just call us on the telephone, which was the technology at the time, 
uh, use our app. And before we get there, just to finish off on the price comparison stuff, there was some stuff, I mean, somebody, I don't know, not, not Monopolies and Mergers Commission or Price Commission or, I mean, there's a million commissions and regulators in the UK. That's one of the biggest problems we have as, uh, microeconomically. I thought somebody was investigating the price comparison websites for being naughty and all, all this kind of stuff. What happened to all that? Or, or am I just making that up? So the FCA currently has an investigation into dual pricing, which was actually meant to report in June of this year, this month, but has been delayed due to COVID. And it's actually more about the treatment of the insurers of the customers rather than the price comparison websites. The price comparison websites aren't driving dual pricing. It's the insurers that actually do the dual pricing, but it's because of the way price comparison websites force them to underbid in order to get new business. Like it, at, at the top, If you're at the top of a price comparison website, you are losing money on that insurance policy and you're only trying to make money next year when you jack up the price. And so new customers get a way better rate than returning customers because that's the only way they make money. If the FCA brings out legislation that says the price that you get next year, if your risk hasn't changed, has to be within X of the price you got last year, then everything will change and it will become much easier for uh, new insurers to break into the market with better propositions because the prices on the price comparison websites will go up in the first year, but then you, will, you won't get screwed next year. And the reason they're doing this is because the system unfairly targets vulnerable people, people who don't necessarily understand how this mechanism works and just fire and forget you know to switch every single year because that's what you've trained to do but millions of people out there don't know to do that and they're the most vulnerable members of society and they're the ones who are paying this massive premium for everybody else to get much cheaper insurance year one yes okay so i see that and it's quite clear i mean my head is in my hands because there's always some pretext as we may have noticed for draconian government action whether they're going to shut the beaches for the benefit of vulnerable people disabled people or skin colored people or something like that and i went to something uh, it was quite an important form i won't say where the other year and someone important was saying oh well i don't think we should allow open banking because plenty of people won't understand it and they'll get taken advantage of and, and blah 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 and my concern when sir paul tucker was on the show talking about unelected power my concern is that the free market such as it exists almost doesn't exist almost anywhere these days. It is, it is regulators deciding. Now, I'm not saying this is right or wrong in this particular case. I'm just zooming up from your issue of the, the car insurance market to the overall philosophy. Would you not say that a system that penalises the most vulnerable in society was market failure? Yes, but what I'm saying is that that is the generic thing that the state says, we are here to save people, yes? It has locked people up and you know, it is more, the most tyrannical thing that's ever happened in this country. They have locked up the healthy people. Simon Dolan will go to court next week and see whether he get his judicial review. Matt Hancock today said he, you know, he's threatening to shut beaches if people go to beaches. I am very concerned, this is a philosophical one, I'm very concerned about a tyrannical state and I'm absolutely concerned about the fact that there are 700 regulators out there. Ofcom has got a case against them by the Free Speech Union, for example. Ofcom cracked down on a draconian fashion on anything other than the official narrative of COVID, which was completely wrong, and thereby ensuring the information. There is, of course, a problem of what one does with the most vulnerable, but all too often, it's my concern, the most vulnerable are used as a pretext for yet more and more regulation, and more and more regulation, and FCA is a prime example, I think their costs in the 2000s have increased certainly sixfold when I saw them a while ago, maybe seven or eightfold, which has to be passed on. The industry gets taxed by the FCA and it has to be passed on to the consumer. So everyone loses out. Now, in terms of what you do with uh, vulnerable people, that's a separate point about education and all that. But it's just the basic nanny state's attitude is that 
it is the parent of the people rather than the representative. Anyway, that's a philosophical point. Let's take that, let's take that to one, one side. I want to reply briefly on that. Really? As long as you agree with me, that's fine. <laughs> well, I, I actually believe financial services firms should be extremely tightly regulated. There is an enormous informational asymmetry between the company and the customer. The customer doesn't understand how insurance works. The company does, and the company can uh, effectively ruin that person's life if they make a decision that doesn't treat them fairly. If you look at uh, London Capital Markets, you look at Lendy, all of these mini-bond guys were, doing, were, were literally operating in the free market. They were uh, flying by the seat of their pants and they've lost investors hundreds of millions of pounds and that's because they weren't tightly regulated enough and that can happen in any segment of financial services. All of that is true and uh, it's a different uh, podcast for a different time but Throughout history, going back to ancient Assyria, which I now know more about than I used to, 4,000 years ago, it's been said that the fool and his money are easily parted. So one approach is to become Russia and to control everything in the benefit of the people. By and large, that doesn't work so well. And in the specific case of mini-bonds that you mentioned, there isn't a question that there is no regulation of FS. There is more regulation of FS now, currently, when mini-bonds have been out there, than in the entirety of history. The question is not should we have regulation? We do have regulation. We've always had regulation. The question in this particular case is, did the regulator regulate this well? Was it good regulation? And the answer is clearly no. Anyway, let's get away from the philosophy. Um, I'm zooming up and regulation is a, is a massive issue and it's definitely been shown to everybody by COVID. Once you allow the state to look after people or protect people or whatever, it's a slippery slope. Anyway, in this particular case, the FCA is the regulator of the insurance market. It is looking at dual pricing. Dual pricing has been around forever. I remember in the 1980s when I finally had sort of some money to put in a building society, walking around the city, oh, Abbey National's got a good rate. I'll put my money in there. And then sort of six months later, I walk past Abbey National go, oh, that rate's not good, what's happened? Anyway, so putting that to one side then, so we can see that delayering always makes sense, whether we've got massive regulation, little regulation, or something in the middle. So tell us about how the delayering works for you and your app and your sort of reinvention of First Direct and, and why isn't everyone doing it or, or the sort of pros and cons and challenges to be managed? So the supply chain for insurance is extremely convoluted. You've got your price comparison website at the front. Well, actually, you've got Google at the front. They actually make most of the money from insurance in this country. You've got Google, then you've got the price, price comparison websites. And then behind that, you've got your brokers. You might have a wholesale broker behind there. Then you might have a primary insurer and then you might have a, or, an, or an MGA and then you might have a, a, a reinsurer. Well, you will have a reinsurer insurer sitting behind them for the excess of loss, but you also might have them quota sharing as well. So you've got loads and loads and loads of uh, mouths to feed in that chain. And I think that the disintermediation happens by having the customer just talking to a company like Cover, an insured tech business, and then insured tech business doing deals with either primary insurers and, or reinsurers or, or a sort of combination of the two. So you're, you're a broker in this context? We're technically a broker, although we're more of a, we're, we're an intermediary. Uh, we are an intermediary. Um, but that's pretty much where ha everyone ha has to start. But I, I think the concept that you really want to be thinking of in terms of the future of where sort of price comparison websites are going, when they go away, what replaces them, is that people are bored of having to switch every year. They're bored of walking past Abbey National and seeing a different rate up there. And they'd rather actually pay a little bit more up front for the first year and know that they were being kept on the best rate forever. And the VC firm A16Z puts it puts it quite succinctly. They call it self-driving money. It means that your financial driven decisions just drive themselves and there is, a, there is an intermediary that is on your side making sure 
that uh, you're always on the best rate, you've always got the right product, you're rolling out of different uh, different carriers, different banks, uh, different broadband providers. Every single time the contract ends and you roll back into the next best contract. And yes, there will be a situation where if you churn every single year with price comparison websites and you, you come back and you pick the top one, you will be a net beneficiary of the insurance system. But the amount of money that's wasted because of that system is just just enormous. If you think about the hundreds of millions of pounds that the price comparison websites alone spend on trying to reacquire their customers every single year, all of that money can be put back into the products, back into the customer experience, and turned and back into the customer's pocket. And so that's that's effectively what we are building. Yes, and that's an interesting example, going back to this ancient idea of, of, of free markets and, and competition, because in theory, in free markets, supply and demand match up and a lot of businesses go bust. Um, it's very cyclical in financial markets, whether it's lending or car insurance or, or all this kind of stuff, and it, it's less clear. But I'm remembering a story when the American investment banks came to London and started getting involved in, in corporate finance. Um, and a, a chap I know was uh, in corporate finance at Schroeder's. I caught up with him and asked him how it had changed his life. He said, oh, he said, we just have to spend about 66% of our time marketing these days. We used to spend about 16% marketing. He said, so we just got always doing pitches, always that. Uh, and unsurprisingly, that's the cost we have to pass on to the, the customer. So the uh, immediate impact of uh, greater competition there was to, to raise prices in the, in the industry. I don't know subsequently what's happened to prices in, in, in corporate finances. There's been some shakeout of capacity, although in M&A stuff in, in corporate finance, it's notably price inelastic because if you're the chief executive and your job's on the line, you know, if this takeover goes or doesn't go ahead, you go, oh, we'll have Goldman Sachs or, or, or something. And they'll say, cost this, go, yeah, well, whatever. The shareholders can pick up the tab. It's, it's a one-off cost. So that's a, a poor example of a market. Okay, so you mentioned before about the commoditization uh, and all that kind of thing. It sounds to me, in, you know, in terms of this, I, this concept you mentioned that there's somebody who's going to look out for me and they're going to sort out my car insurance or my broadband or whatever uh, and I go oh thanks because actually it's a right pain in the ass to keep track of all these and you know and sure I'm, I'm very happy for you to take a few quid for doing this for me and making sure I was get the cheapest provider and, and, and all that kind of jazz it sounds like what a broker used to be although brokers had to take money out because they were sort of human beings with, with shoe leather so it's slightly reinventing the old school broker going back decades ago. But the, the one aspect you haven't touched on there is that when you said earlier one of the problems of price comparison websites is that they've driven everything to being a square packing in my terms, was actually, I, you know, somebody like me, for example, with my car, I could actually benefit by having a sort of a richer than a day minimis product. So how does that work in Cover's case and, and, and your mentality? So what we've been able to do by building all of our infrastructure from the ground up is actually build it around the person. So the way, the way an insurance company thinks about you is actually not as a person. Person. their databases see you as a policy and if you buy a policy next year they'll see you as a like a completely new policy they're, they're like basically like a goldfish and they use this concept of the no claims bonus to try and tie your policies together and reward you for your uh, non-claiming over over different insurers in different years with the same insurer but what we've been able to do because we were founded a few years ago is actually build an account based system where we can look at you we can look at all of your individual products and that means we can explode the core product and all of the add-ons that go around it and then we 
can go to lots of different places for all of those add-ons around the core product and lots of different places for the core product and add it all back in completely automated. So we can, with a set of sliders on a monthly basis, include or exclude any of the add-ons that you might be interested in. And it doesn't even have to stop at um, windscreen cover and car key cover. And there are loads and loads of small services that it doesn't make sense to sell on their own that could exist that can go on top of the core insurance product. And so with our with our new product, which is a monthly rolling product for your insurance, you're actually you're, you're with a set of sliders, you're able to include or exclude all of this stuff, and then slowly, surely, we'll we'll build on a bunch more stuff that will make owning a car much less of a headache. I see. So having an app and all this kind of techie stuff, then that parameterization is there. So for example, if I want legal cover or something, I tick legal cover, or if I don't know if I'm driving around Europe or something like that. So you could turn on Europe for a month if you're driving around Europe for example, just not something that's possible with an annual motor insurance policy from a traditional motor insurer. We've been able to do it by automating everything. So we have two products. The first is an hourly car insurance to borrow a car. The new product is a subscription on your own car. The hourly car insurance product we sell in chunks of one hour and you'll pay, you know, five, ten quid to borrow someone else's car for an hour. With that product, we're now selling by volume five percent of all UK motor insurance policies. And we've done that with only 90 people, most of whom are actually working on building technology. This is a complete order of magnitude step change in the abilities of an intermediary, whereas most intermediaries at that scale would have thousands of people working for them on the phones, changing stuff manually. Yes, if I wasn't at a thousand degrees here, um, I might have remembered that and included it in the introduction, which is that there are not many fintechs who come on the show who have got 5% of any market. So that's quite some achievement. So we'll come on to cover. But beforehand, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there. I hope you're all in less tyrannical state-driven systems than I, for example, um, nice free marketing places like China, perhaps. I'd also like to thank the brand partner for the podcast, Smart Pension, who are fast, secure and free. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrolment.co.uk. So we've spoken about quite a, a, a few things from the sort of uh, philosophy of free markets and what the state should do to regulation, to price comparison websites, to reinventing kind of 21st century broking in, in my inaccurate but sort of just sketch terms. The one thing which is quite clear before we get you to wave your flags for cover is that although most of your people are techies, the sort of the one or two of them that do marketing must do marketing very well if you've suddenly got 5% of a certain market without really sort of troubling price comparison sites or something like that. How, how on earth do you get 5% of a market? Do you do Twitter? Do you do adverts? We do do traditional digital direct response marketing, but we also have referral programs in the app. So if you uh, if you refer a friend, you get £10 off your next policy. And uh, we do do a bit of above-the-line stuff. So I think we're currently in all UK major UK service stations and uh, uh, we've also got a radio campaign in the whole of the north of England so uh, we use traditional and uh, and new digital marketing to get the word out there but actually most of our customers still come through word of mouth the key is actually to build a product that people desperately want and need and they'll tell their friends about it so it's a bit like how Revolut has grown. I mean, Monzo has lots of press coverage and all that kind of stuff. It's quite hard not to trip over the mainstream, but Revolut certainly a few years ago 
grew because techies told other techies and, and, and they told other techies and, and it went sort of viral in a sort of certain slice. So do I assume that the people that are your main demographic are, are people like my daughter living in London where she doesn't get a car very often and maybe borrows a mate's car for a weekend or something? We're definitely mostly used by uh, millennials and Generation Z um, because they're the people who don't necessarily own a car. They don't want to own a car, but they might have a friend or a flatmate who does own a car. And, and they're a generation that's clearly much more interested in distributed ownership of, uh, of assets. Yes, although you having explained your model, I mean, if you're going to insure me for, for the sake of argument for an, for an hour for driving someone's car, I assume that if I multiplied it by whatever, a gazillion or how many hours there are in a year, that would look really expensive, but I'm just paying sort of a few quid for an hour. In a, doing an APR kind of equivalent doesn't make uh, sense. But I can see that in other cases, for example, Bridget's got a, a car where the, the hood comes down. So we absolutely take it out when it's 30 degrees and we don't take it out when it's 12. Why would we? That actually going forward, this model could be extended. Whereas if it's in the on the drive or in the garage, she doesn't actually need anything other than it won't be stolen insurance. She doesn't need, I'm going to crash it insurance when it's there. Whereas when it's, you know, it's whatever it is, two or three months a year where it's actually worth taking it out, we take it out. Whereas, of course, at the moment, she pays for 12 months insurance. So it seems to me that your model can be extended in theory. Yes, but unfortunately, we need to get the law changed first. Oh, well, it's a small thing. <laughs> It is uh, currently illegal to not have your uh, motor vehicle insured at any one point. So it's called continuous insurance enforcement. So could you not, within that law, though, have a kind of, whatever it is, third party fire and theft, the, the, the de minimis insurance you have, and then just have a button that says, oh, I want the proper insurance? We have explored in this space before, but uh, you, you're not actually able to issue an insurance policy that people aren't able to drive on. And most of the cost of an insurance policy is not in the comprehensive segment. It's actually in the third party fire and theft. Most of the cost of an insurance policy is your likelihood of doing something to somebody else, which is going to happen if you get in that car and drive it. Yes, well, that, that, make, that makes sense. People who, who aren't insured are a menace. OK, so in terms of your past, you've done extremely well, Freddie. What are your future plans? Where's cover going? Are you expanding geographically or are you expanding into house insurance? And of the many, many listeners out there, who should be checking you out? and downloading your app or partnering up with you in Bolivia or wherever you're going next. So every single person listening should absolutely download the app. Even if they're not in the UK. So you're just in the UK to be clear at the moment, aren't you? Uh, we are just in the UK at the moment, sorry. Every, everyone with a UK driving license in the UK should, uh, should download the app and uh, it's an essential part of your emergency toolkit. And you should definitely check out our new subscription product, which is a rolling monthly Netflix-style subscription to your own car. And there's gonna be a huge number of really cool insurance and non-insurance services built on top of that that really dive into this intersection between insurance and mobility. And uh, if you are a uh, UK motor insurer, you're an underwriter or a pricing person or a data analyst, we'd love to talk to you because we are hiring as well. Excellent. Well, I'm very impressed with the 5% statistic. 400,000 is also a very large number for customers. And in terms of the many people who want to be on the show and the people who reach out to me, I always say that my guide to who's on the show is, is Darwin. You know, if, if it succeeds, it succeeds. And it's something that I want to spread the word about on the show. And you guys definitely deserve to be heard about by maybe even more demographics certainly if you live in central london these days it doesn't really matter what age you are if you live in central central london it's crazy because we're going to park the goddamn car i mean even decades ago when i lived in maida vale 
I, I, by the end of it, and I'm, oh, I'm talking about early 90s here, by the end of it, I didn't take my car out in the evening because in Maidaville there were so many flats and so few car parking spaces that if I took it out... You wouldn't get one. I wouldn't yeah. get one. And so I'd have to get up at six o'clock in the morning. I'm driving around. I've got to go, got to, go to work. So it doesn't really matter what your age is. If you live in the, in the centre of a large city, then it sounds like it's just the ideal thing for you. So thank you, that, Freddie. I'm very jealous of your uh, air conditioning today. And I wish you every success in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance we could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city I'm so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so great Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye City goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight dance.